Okay, if you can turn to 2 Timothy 4. I'm going to read a few verses there, and if you would stand with me if you're able. In the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and, and the dead, and in the view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to miss, but you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, disregard all the duties of your, of your ministry. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Caleb, I'm the pastor of Student Ministries here, and it is a great joy to open up God's Word with you this morning. Uh, before we do that, though, uh, would, you, would you pray with me? Father, we come before you, confessing that Jesus spoke rightly, that we do not live by bread alone, but by the words that proceed from your mouth. And so, Father, we ask that you would be among your people this morning to nourish us, to feed us, to grow us up into the image of your Son. Father, I ask for me also, I ask that you would fill me for this time of ministry, that you would speak through me and bring glory and honor to your name and your name alone. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, it's about 11 o'clock which means all of you are thinking about what you're going to have for lunch. You're looking at me, but we all know that we're scrolling through the menu trying to pick what we're going to eat. And I gotta be honest, I'm not too offended about this because I know you can't help it. Do you know there's this thing called homeostatic hunger? That your body begins looking for its next meal just hours after it's eaten. You are literally wired to be hungry. And that hunger extends far beyond our stomachs, doesn't it? If there is an employee at the office or someone on the field that's just a try-hard, a real go-getter, we say that they are hungry. Or if you travel all week and your kids just won't leave your side, we say that they are starved for your attention. We are creatures filled with longing. We are hungry in every sense of the word. And that can cause a problem for us. This morning we are continuing our series titled Mind the Gap. We as a church are exploring how we can move from where we are to where God calls us to be. How can we be devoted to following Christ together? And we have to acknowledge that there are certain things in our life that work against that, certain gaps that arise. And this morning, we're going to look at the hunger gap. Now, from the onset, I need to, to clarify, hunger is not a problem. It's how we go about satisfying our hunger that creates the gap, that creates the problem for us. And so today, I want us to look at how we can bridge the hunger gap. 
And to do that, we turn our attention to 2 Timothy chapter 4, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 5. And from our text, I want us to make three movements, and to help you remember what they are, we've attached them to, uh, to phrases you've probably heard around the dinner table. So, movement number one, what's for dinner? Movement number two, but I'm still hungry. And movement number three, man, I am stuffed. So, as we turn our attention to our text, we need to understand what's going on. We need to place it in its context. So this is the last correspondence that we have from the Apostle Paul. He's near the end of his life. He's in prison. And he is writing not to a church, but to a, a dear friend and coworker in the gospel. He's writing to Timothy. Timothy hasn't done anything wrong. He's not writing to, to correct Timothy about something. He's writing to encourage him. He wants Timothy to keep doing what he's been doing more and more. And our text is the final exhortation of Paul's final letter. And you can feel the gravity, the, 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 the significance of what he's about to instruct Timothy as he ramps it up in verse 1. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and by his kingdom, preach the word. This is arguably the thing that Paul wants Timothy to do. And since we're talking about it in terms of hunger, let's, uh, let's place it within that metaphor. Paul knows that the congregation in Ephesus is going to come to Timothy and say, Timothy, we're hungry. What's for dinner? And Paul says, Timothy, you need to preach the word. You need to give them a good helping of God's word. And we need to unpack that a little bit because there is a difference between preaching the word and teaching. Teaching's primary aim is the, trans, uh, the transmission of information, whereas preaching is the transformation of the individual. Preaching the word's all about movement, which is why Paul tells Timothy that he needs to season his preaching with, with reproofs, with rebukes, and with exhortations. Now, we could do some word studies on those, but I think you get the, the gist of it. The, the God's word is good for you, but it might not taste good to you. That there will be times when it will show you that you are wrong, that it will command that you stop, and it will call you to live in line with your calling. But this is the meal that Paul says will satisfy Timothy's audience, and he needs to be preaching it in season and out of season. Now, you, you might be thinking, well, okay, can I order the preached word, but can we, can we hold the reproof and the rebuking and the exhorting? Is there, is there like a spiritual uh, yummies meal package thing? No. No, there are no substitutions. And there's a reason for that. Uh, I'm backing up just a couple of verses into chapter 3 where Paul writes in verse 16 that all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. See, the word of God is never separated from the God who speaks the words. This is not a dead document that we can slice up and take the parts that we like and leave the rest. 
Hebrews tells us that the word of God is living and active, that when we open his word, he is there to meet with and nourish his people. He so fills them up that they are full and complete, equipped for every good work. That's why the word of God, with all of its reproving and rebuking and exhorting, is the thing that will satisfy our hunger because God is there. And that's what our hearts are longing for. I believe it was the philosopher Blaise Pascal who famously said that each of us has a God-shaped hole in our hearts and that only our creator can fill it. And if you listen closely, you can hear that is true in people's lives. You can listen to uh, the interview that sports stars give after the game, or you can hear it in the lyrics of chart-topping songs. They, they hope that the next wind, uh, the next ring, will finally bring about some sense of fulfillment and satisfaction. But as of now, they still haven't found what they're looking for. But Timothy has. Timothy has what they're looking for. And Paul says, preach the word. Give it to them. And by extension, he exhorts us to receive the word. To receive it and be satisfied with it. And so what's for dinner? It's the word of God. It's the divine diet. That's, that's what will satisfy our hunger. But, but this passage does raise a question for us, doesn't it? Why does Paul feel the need to exhort Timothy to do this? If all I've just said is true, if God truly does satisfy all of our hunger, all of our longing, why would Timothy need, be, need to be told to do this? Shouldn't people be lining up in droves to hear it? Shouldn't it be an utter joy for him rather than something that requires complete patience to fulfill his ministry? And I think what, what's happening is that there are people who have heard, but they're still left saying, uh, but I'm still hungry. See, Paul gives the rationale for this command in verses three through four. He says that, that a time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Now, typically, we think about uh, the people that Paul is talking about as those who are out there. You know the ones. The ones who are disinterested, maybe even hostile toward the Christian message. Paul's already talked about those people, though. That's, that's what he's talking about in chapter 3 when he's talking about the people who are lovers of self and lovers of money and proud, etc., etc., etc. He's already warned Timothy about them. He might still be doing that here. But it's just as likely that he's warning them about a different group of people, one that has come to be fed and is still hungry, and they're starting to look elsewhere for food. Now, where am I getting that from the text? Well, uh, it, it really centers around this term, itching ears. Now, ears don't really fit in a food metaphor, but just, just bear with me. It'll make sense. Ears and the heart are closely connected in scripture. Uh, you see that, uh, for example, in Romans chapter 10, when Paul's talking about conversion, he says, how will they call on the name of the Lord if they do not believe in him? And how will they believe in him if they have not heard? 
ear, heart, they're linked. And so an itching ear is synonymous with a pining heart, a heart that has a, a longing that needs to be satisfied. And that's not just an unbeliever's issue. We all have hungry hearts. Now, we've been dancing around this dot idea of hunger for a bit uh, without defining it, and there's a reason for that. It's really hard to define uh, because each of us has a different hunger palate. See, we all have the same base hungers. We all long for approval, intimacy, and influence, and security, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But we all long for those things to differing degrees. So my hunger looks a little bit different like your hunger. And that's not a problem. Hunger is not the problem. The problem is when we're hungry, we often go outside of proper means to satisfy it, which, which shouldn't be a problem for the Christian, right? God, we think, is like a cosmic Costco, that, that he has everything you could ever want or need in bulk. But I, I think what some of Timothy's audience is finding and my, my hunch is perhaps you have discovered that sometimes God is more like a niche eatery, that he does one thing really, really well, but doesn't really seem to have anything else on the menu. He's really good at satisfying your spiritual hunger, but some of those more tangible hungers, they just don't really seem to be on his radar. In fact, sometimes it seems like he's actively working against them. And think about it. We long for security. We hunger for security. And what does God say to do? Sell all your possessions. Give generously, sacrificially to the poor. Or, or we have a hunger for community. And God then commands us to do things that alienate us from our, our, our work team. It, it seems like God is disinterested in meeting the entirety of our hunger palate. And, and so what happens is a gap begins to form because we are hungry people. And what do hungry people do? They seek satisfaction. They look for something to satisfy the hunger. And if you're not getting in one place, you're gonna go somewhere else. See, hunger is the reason that we do things we know we ought not to do. Have you ever noticed that certain, certain sins have like, zero temptation value to you. Like, they don't even phase you. But there are other sins that just have, like, a death grip on you, and you just can't seem to shake it. The reason for that is your hunger palate. The, the, the sin that has a grip on you has also attached a feeding tube to you. It's helping to, to satisfy your hunger. And if you were to remove it, to deal with it, well, then you also remove the tube. See, hunger is also the reason that we don't do the things we know we should do. See, we, we all know that we should be sharing the gospel in our sphere of influence. But something holds us back, and it's our hunger. We are so hungry for the approval of others to be thought well of that, that we say nothing. We say nothing about the hope that is within us because we need our hunger for approval to be satisfied. Do you see the problem? The problem's not hunger. The problem is that we have made our hunger the ultimate pursuit of our lives. Yes, we might take a polite bite of God or nibble here and there on his word. But we're really just after how we can satisfy our hunger. 
That's our priority. And the longer that hunger goes unmet, the more consuming of a pursuit it becomes. And it keeps us right here where we are and prevents us from going to where God calls us to be. Now you might be thinking, okay, Caleb, I I see how that's a problem for fulfilling our call, but why is that a problem for me? I mean, I just want to be filled. I just want to be satisfied. So what's the problem here? I don't know if anyone has articulated it better than Cynthia Heimel. So Cynthia was a writer for The Village Voice. It was a popular publication um, back in the 90s. Um, And she would rub shoulders with a lot of famous people, even befriended a few of them. And she's writing this article about celebrities, and she says this, I pity celebrities. No, I, I, I really do. Because the moment someone becomes a celebrity is the same moment they become a monster. And here's how she knows that to be true. She's watched it happen in a few of her friends who are very famous celebrities in Hollywood, I might add. They were perfectly nice people, people that you'd want to have lunch with, and yet they wanted fame more than anything else. And so she says that they worked, they pushed, they stepped on the other guy's face in their desperate need. And once they finally got it, the morning after, they wanted to take an overdose. Why? because all their fantasies had been realized. Yet the reality was still the same. If they were miserable before, they were twice as miserable now because that giant thing they were striving for, that fame thing that was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and happiness, it had happened. And nothing changed. They were still them. The disillusionment turn them howling and insufferable. See, the problem is we still have that God-shaped hole. No matter what we try to stuff in there, it just doesn't satisfy. it's It's like trying to satisfy your thirst with salt water. It looks like it'll work, and it kind of does for a second, but in the end, it just leaves you even thirstier. And that's because our hearts will be restless, they will be unsatisfied until we rest in him. And so the question is, how do we do that? What will it take for us to be able to scoot back from the table and say, man, I am stuffed? And I think the Bible reveals that to us as a theme that plays throughout where it says that we need to taste and see that the Lord is good. If we want to be full, we need to see and taste the Lord's goodness differently. So let's work them backwards. How do we need to see God's goodness differently? When you think about God's goodness, what pops into your head? It's probably the cross. It's probably God's provision on the cross for you. And that's absolutely true. That's not, that's not quite encompassing enough because James tells us that every good thing comes down from God. And we don't tend to think like that. We have our, uh, our category and the God category. That's a false dichotomy. See, I, I, Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 28, uh, he's talking about how farmers are really smart because they know not to overplow the ground and they know to plant this seed here and this seed at this time. And then he concludes by saying, they are rightly instructed because their God teaches them. Did you realize that even your your business savvy, your intellect, all those intangibles that you attribute to yourself, they're 
generously given to you by God. And so if we are going to be full, we need to not just see God as the judge who forgave our offenses, but the God who generously provides everything for us. And that is difficult for us, especially when we look, see, experience hungers that just don't seem to be met. And we can think to ourselves, but God doesn't care. God is not interested in my hunger. And I would agree with you, except for Jesus. In uh, John chapter 6, two things happen. Uh, Jesus feeds the 5,000. He satisfies their physical hunger. But then when they come to him again, he's like, guys, look, your hunger is not actually for food. You need something more, something greater. You need the bread of life. And he says in verse 51 that, that I am the living bread that, that came down from heaven, that if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. See, Jesus knows what our hearts are longing for. He also knows that we can't receive it. Because of our sin, we are no longer able to come to God and be satisfied to him. If we come to God, we're getting consumed by him. And so Jesus gave his flesh so that we might be restored to God, so that our greatest need might be satisfied. And in so doing, he showed us something very important, something I think Paul encapsulates well in in Romans chapter 8. I'm reading verses 31 and 32. He says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? See, when we look at Jesus, we see with certainty that God will provide, he will satisfy our hungers. That doesn't mean that he's going to give you everything you want or even give you everything you want on your timetable. But what it does show us is that if God were to give the greatest, most valuable thing to satisfy your hunger, how will he not also do everything else to care for you? See, for us to be able to see the goodness of God, we have to see the bread of life. And not just see it, we have to taste it. And this is where the money is. So how do we do that? Uh, again, I think Jesus spells it out for us in John chapter 6. Uh, I am starting in verse 33, or 53. Sorry, uh, Jesus says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Now, there is a lot of graphic language in this passage, but if you can look past the blood and the the flesh eating, you will see something. What does Jesus say that we need to do? He says that you need to feed on him. Well, how do you do that? Well, you have to embody Jesus. You have to to take him in. And, And that requires a couple of things. See, to feed on Jesus means you actually need to take a bite. 
It's quite possible that you feel hungry because you can't remember the last time you sat down and ate. For us to taste the goodness of God, we actually have to take a bite of this. But we don't just take a bite and swallow. We also have to chew it. See, sometimes I think, uh, and I am guilty of this, sometimes we spend so much time examining the food, cutting it up, mining it for meaning, seeing what everyone else has to say about the food, that we don't actually spend any time eating it. We just scarf it down and move on to the next thing. The Bible tells us that that what needs to happen, if we're to embody Jesus, we actually have to chew on him for a bit. We have to meditate on it. We have to keep coming back to it day in and day out, week in and week out. And frankly, that's what the companion devotional for this series is all about. It's not an in-depth study. It's a chewing aid. We're just trying to help you chew. We're just trying to help you maul on and reflect and absorb and taste the goodness of God. Not only do we need to embody Jesus, I also think we need him to be embodied for us. See, here's the thing. If you are hungering for approval, you can read and reflect on something like 1 John 3.1, which says that God has lavished his love on you because he has called you child of God, and so you are. And you can chew on that, and you can reflect on it, but sometimes you will find yourself in a wilderness that that the hunger is so acute that you don't need to just intake it. It needs to be embodied for you. You need someone to come alongside of you, to wrap their arms around you and say, you are a beloved child of God. He loves you. He's got you. See, fighting hunger, friends, is a community effort. You need help chewing sometimes, and that's okay. So here's the point. It is possible to bridge the hunger gap. God is what's for dinner, and he can satisfy you. And when you feel that you are still hungry, you got to feast on him. You got to keep consuming his word and you got to do that with others until you can say, man, I'm stuffed. So brothers and sisters, if, if we want to be the church God's calling us to be, if, if we want to be devoted to following Christ together, then we got to bridge the hunger gap. We got to eat. And so let's together savor our savior. You pray with me. Father, we come before you and we confess that we are hungry and that we are looking for satisfaction. Father, we we confess and we know that, that in you we find all that we need. But we also must confess that in our hunger we have sought different uh, sources to the detriment of ourselves and your mission. Father, would you forgive us? Would you help us by the power of your Holy Spirit to taste and see your goodness that is poured out in Jesus so that we might be satisfied? Father, we come before you hungry, and yet we know that you satisfy. Father, we are empty, and yet we know that your love does not run run dry. And so as we fall on our knees, as we sing your praises, would you be here with us even now because your hearts are all that we are longing for.
And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.